The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry in Law podcast, Episode 7, Right to Die. I think probably one of the big reasons why I'm a psychiatrist is because I love stories. One of the stories I read about was Dax Cowart, who is the individual who was seriously burned when he was in his 20s and, and begged for them to allow him to die, and they didn't, and he then attempted suicide several times. Eventually, um, when he had recovered enough, he became a lawyer, and he's somebody who talks a lot about you know, capacity and an individual's right um, to, to refuse life-saving treatments or to ask life-saving treatment to be withdrawn. That's Dr. Katie Cerny. I'm a psychiatrist for University Hospitals of Cleveland. I'm the program director for the general psychiatry program at Case Western University Hospitals. And I also do some clinical work at a community mental health center and I'm a forensic evaluator for a court of common pleas half day a week. Dr. Cerny, thank you so much for taking time out of your, what sounds like, very, very busy schedule to speak with us about this uh, critical issue. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to do so. It, it might sound like a very uh, simple or general question, but do we have a right to die or maybe more specifically, a right to choose our own death in the United States? So the courts have said no. I should clarify that there isn't a constitutional right to die or a constitutionally based right to determine how we die. There have been legal cases heard by the Supreme Court and far back as 1997 where they talked about the right to having um, assistance with suicide and found that the right to assisted suicide is not a fundamental liberty interest. So this is this idea of having a physician assist with suicide is not something that's been rooted in our, our nation's history and tradition. The courts have not, the Supreme Court has not stopped individual states from legalizing physician assisted suicide, but they have not found a constitutional basis for a right to die. Okay, so this is something that isn't found in our, our most foundational document, the United States Constitution, are there other laws, maybe state laws or state court opinions that have uh, something to say about this? So there, there are five states who have laws um, permitting physician-assisted suicide, and those states are Oregon, Washington, Vermont, California, and Colorado. And there have been challenges to those laws. And then in addition to those five states, there are other states right now where there's legislation being discussed. And so actually, uh, Wikipedia has a really great uh, color-coded map that shows you what states have legalized patient, I'm sorry, physician-assisted suicide and in which states it's currently illegal. Okay. Wikipedia to the rescue. If I was Yeah, a... Wikipedia every time. Yeah, right. Um, so if I wonder if that's used more than uh, PubMed by some, some healthcare providers. I, I don't know. I think a lot of people are intimidated who are kind of outside the legal profession with looking into this stuff, but it sounds like you would encourage people to 
go ahead and, and take a peek and, and see what's going on in their in their area? Sure. And I mean, I think there's a lot um, of discussion about this topic. There's been a lot of um, cases in the news within the last couple of years. There are examples in popular culture where these things are being discussed. So there's a lot out there to find. And of course, you have to worry sometimes about the quality of the source material, whether or not it is something that can be trusted. There are some terms that I'd like you to help us understand better, the the idea of um, maybe a spectrum of approaches. I've heard the words euthanasia, I've heard the word uh, physician-assisted suicide, and then there's always this idea of uh, withdrawal of life support. Are, are these things all the same? Do they overlap? Could you break this down for us, please? Sure. So they're definitely not the same, both for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. There is an intent to bring about the, the patient, the individual's death. But the difference between those two things is euthanasia, the, the physician, the provider is directly involved. So usually like administering medication intravenously and you can think of uh, Dr. Kevorkian and his death machine. Whereas patient-assisted suicide is when the provider prescribes lethal doses of medications, but it's up to the patient when and under what circumstances they take those medications. The physician isn't there at the time or directly involved in giving the medication to the patient um, at the time of death. I see. So the control point between the two, in in one case, it's the physician who is kind of in charge and, and, and physically involved. And then in the other one, the patient has the control. In this country, in the United States, euthanasia is illegal. But as we mentioned earlier, there are the five states that now permit physician-assisted suicide. Now, euthanasia is legal in some other countries, for example, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, Colombia. And then what about uh, withdrawal of life support? It's recognized that in a competent individual Someone with capacity to make medical decisions can direct withdrawal of life support. So you're saying that someone who is on life support, if they're able to communicate and they're said to have mental capacity, they can they can make their own determination to withdraw life support. Correct. That sounds like that would be hard to do for the kinds of patients I've seen who are on life support. They may be intubated or at the time they may be uh, sedated. Um, how, how does that exactly work? So if the individual doesn't have capacity to make that decision, then there needs to be a proxy decision maker. And that could be next of kin, power of attorney, a guardian. The proxy decision maker could be relying on something that the individual specified or detailed when they did have capacity. You know, unfortunately, that that individual themselves can't make the decision when they're in that state, but they can have someone else make the decision for them. I imagine that uh, documents such as uh, advanced directives or healthcare power of attorney documents could be useful to the proxy decision makers uh, if if something like this happens. Absolutely. So having some you know, documentation of an individual's wishes, should they ever find themselves in a state that they are unlikely to recover from without artificial support, for example, having documented proof of that individual's wishes ahead of time from when they were confident, when they did have capacity, is important. 
having some documentation to, to back you up is, is always helpful. That kind of brings up a, a thought that I was having. Are there ever circumstances or have you ever come across a circumstance where the proxy decision maker just outright disagrees with what is in the advanced directive? And uh, I imagine the circumstances would be something along the lines of, you know, the proxy decision maker could be a, an adult child of the patient who's elderly and wants everything done for their parent or grandparent, whereas the advanced directive says that only supportive measures or minimal care or no heroic care or whatever you know term they use, um, that, that's what they want done. At my hospital, luckily, we have a fantastic ethics team that can get involved and, and help mediate some of this and, and help all parties come to a decision about what should be done. Right, right. It sounds like uh, it's probably best to not go it alone as the healthcare provider and enlist uh, maybe an interdisciplinary approach or a team or ethics or maybe clergy or, or other groups so that uh, a consensus. Right, other groups. Well, one of my, my favorite forensic um, psychiatrist, Dr. Gutile, sometimes comes to the forensic meetings wearing his uh, Never Worry Alone t-shirt. And I think that's really great advice. Never worry alone. That, that is good advice. Coming back to the issue of mental capacity, let's say that the patient themselves is the one who's going to make the decision. They're awake and, and uh, they think they're alert. What does that actually mean for a patient to have mental capacity to make decisions such as these? So to have capacity, the individual has to be able to understand information that they're given. They have to appreciate that information as it, as it applies to themselves in their particular situation. They have to be able to make rational decisions using that information and then be able to communicate that decision um, to other people. And they need to have the ability to, to make this decision without undue influence from other people. Undue influence. I've heard that sometimes referred to as a lack of coercion. Right. I think that's kind of a hard thing to achieve um, when you've maybe got friends or family members who are having a hard time with end-of-life issues, who, who don't want to let you go or let you give up the fight, and, and so they're their wishes are maybe contrary to what you'd like to do. So I think it's kind of hard to escape some of that that influence. Right, right. And what is influence versus advice? Or even sincere expression of, of, of somebody's feelings. Is there a role for some sort of measurement of the patient's cognition in assessing their mental capacity? I'm thinking of something like the... Uh, MOCA, the Montreal uh, Cognitive Assessment, or the uh, older uh, mini mental status exam, or, or something like that. Is that necessary? It's the close calls that are, are the hard things. I, I think there's a role for, for screening tests, such as a MOCA or mini mental, um, but I think they only give part of the picture. I don't, I don't think they, in and of themselves, unless somebody completely and totally bombs it, um, I don't think they, in and of itself, can can give us the answer with regards to capacity. What you're describing is a pretty nuanced circumstance. And so what you're saying is, let's say somebody scores a 20 out of 30 on one of those tests. It sounds like, Dr. Cerny, that just the score alone doesn't indicate whether the person does or does not have the capacity to express their end-of-life wishes. Exactly. You You want several pieces of data to support your decision. So who is supposed to decide 
if the patient gets one of these cognitive exams or maybe even a more thorough cognitive exam? Is that something the patient decides or the clinician or the courts? So unfortunately, I don't think that there is an answer to that exactly. Um, I think that probably different things happen at different places. You know, I I think it would be great for the profession, um, for psychiatry, psychiatrists or people in mental health to to be advocates in this area and and to really, when we're talking about matters of, of life and death or you know, serious injury, that, that more than a cursory evaluation of an individual's capacity needs to be done. Now, a lot of times, too, though, we're on the clock, right? There's not, there's not a lot of time, necessarily. It sounds very complicated. So it sounds like there's a, a time pressure, because this is literally an end-of-life issue where there may be days or weeks or maybe even less time to, to get to a good answer. Uh, and there may be a lot of other factors at play. I read a great article from the Journal of Ethics, the AMA Journal of Ethics, about taking no for an answer. And in the article, the example is a firefighter who's been seriously injured, significantly burned, leg crushed, smoke inhalation. And in that moment, he, you know, he's able to communicate a choice, understand information, um, appreciate the risks of treatment versus not, but that moment is going to be very short-lived, very, you know, very quickly he's going to need to be intubated and, and sedated. And, and so you don't necessarily have time to do as complete of an evaluation as you wish that you could in some situation. Now, coming back to the circumstance where there may be someone else making the decision uh, about end of life for the patient, and we can call that person a, a proxy decision maker. In in that case, if that person doesn't have a lot of guidance, let's say the patient in question does not have an advanced directive, does not have a living will, does not have a healthcare power of attorney document. So basically, there's nothing. And my guess is that a lot of patients. Uh, certainly, at least from from my experience, a lot of people are precisely in that circumstance. Uh, and so right. now they're sick and they're in the hospital and things are going poorly with their health. And the proxy decision maker has to make a decision. And it's a, it's a very heavy decision. In, in your experience, is the guidance that we can give to the proxy decision maker, does it come from the perspective of asking the proxy decision maker to put themselves in the shoes of the patient and substituting the patient's judgment for their own because they know the patient better than anyone else, presumably? Or should they be making a judgment based on purely medical guidance? Obviously, it sounds ideal to use the substituted judgment model of proxy decision-making because that takes into account the incapacitated individual's wishes um, and personal preferences. But the proxy doesn't always know what those things are. You know, the proxy decision-maker could be somebody who was appointed by the court. They can't always rely on knowing what that person would have done if they had capacity. And so the best interest model of proxy decision-making does suggest that you should make the decision based on what is in the medical best interest of that individual. So it sounds like there's a few factors at play. One is there may actually be guidance in a certain jurisdiction 
about whether the proxy decision maker should make decisions based on substituting the patient's judgment for their own versus what's in the medical best interests uh, of the patient. So that's one issue. And then the other is uh, you bring up a very good point. I, I always think of, and maybe this is my Hollywood version of things, that the, the proxy decision maker actually knows the patient. But what if it's someone who doesn't? What if it's an estranged next of kin who hasn't been in touch with the patient in years? Or maybe it's a court appointed uh, like a guardian or a guardian ad litem or something like that. Exactly. Or, you know, there are some, some of the famous landmark cases where the incapacitated individual has never had capacity. Somebody with profound intellectual disability, for example, um, they've never had capacity to communicate much in the way of, of their wishes or um, their beliefs. And so how can the proxy substitute the patient's judgment for their own when the patient has not ever been able to articulate um, their wishes? Dr. Cerny, thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out of your schedule. Uh, we really appreciate it. No, you are certainly welcome.